Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, a couple of years ago, I was contacted by a TV company and they asked me this really curious question. They said, Guy, do you know if there's any Nazi gold waiting to be dug up? And if so, where is it? And of course, I kind of laughed at them because I thought, well, if I knew where it was, I'd be digging it up myself and not making a TV programme about it. And I'd be talking to them from my private island in the Maldives or somewhere like that. But I can see why they were interested, because Nazi gold is one of those kind of perennially thrilling topics. It's one of those sort of historical subjects that never fails to fascinate. And indeed, you know, this month we've had another Nazi gold story. This one's from Poland and it concerns 48 crates of Nazi gold worth nearly half a billion pounds at a palace used by Hitler's SS as a brothel. Now, this is a story written by a computer algorithm. It's got, you know, everything in there, hasn't it? And it's even got a secret diary written by an SS officer whose name, incidentally, doesn't appear on any SS officer lists. And apparently, they're gonna start digging soon. And to my mind, they always are about to start digging because this story is about two to three years old. These guys in this story, they were starting to dig in 2019. Still no gold and there won't be any gold. Those with longer memories will remember the Nazi gold train. That was in Poland as well. A whole train stuffed full of gold hidden in a tunnel since the end of the Second World War. Again, nothing discovered there. And it's not just gold, but it's also other forms of treasure spitfires in the jungle. I I remember even David Cameron getting involved in that story because there's rumoured to be about 12 spitfires all hidden in a jungle in Burma. So it's kind of a global issue but it's also this story that resonates with so many people and I really want to dig into the idea ho-ho of Nazi gold and to help me I've invited my brilliant friend James Holland, who is the most excellent historian, chair of the Chalk Valley History Festival, does a brilliant We Have Ways uh, podcast with Al Murray. He's a very handy batsman, and he's also done a lot of research about the end of the war. As indeed have I, because I wrote a book all about the flight of Nazis, but I also looked at the flight of their capital. Jim, thanks so much for coming along today. Oh, Walt, lovely to be here. Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, some people do know me as Walt. That That is absolutely fine if you want to call me Walt as well. Now, can I just take us back to maybe early 45 and can we just concentrate on Europe for the time being? What are your typical you know, Nazis and SS officers doing? I mean, you've been to places like you know, northern Italy, Austria, the Alto Adige. Are, are they all running around like headless chickens? What's sort of going on at this stage? There is quite a lot of headless chickenness going on at this stage. Absolutely. I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because Martin Bormann, who is effectively kind of running the day to day operations of the Third Reich, by, certainly by the time of the um, July plot of July 1944. In August 1944, he has a meeting with loads of um, really senior German businessmen who've spread their tentacles beyond the kind of immediate boundaries of the Third Reich and said, right, the war is coming to an end. We need to plan for kind of plan B, you know, a Fourth Reich, but we need to kind of retract. Yeah. We need to kind of, sort of bring everything together and we need to think of a plan about what we're going to do with all our finances and all our money and all our assets and all the rest of it. So plans are are in place, you know, whether it's sort of going to Tangiers and or whether it's all just going into Swiss vaults is a kind of moot point. But they are starting to think about what they're going to do with it all. And these are, if you like, sort of quite grown up people. It's not just some lowly ranking officer who happens to got a bit of treasure and he's going to put it in a hole somewhere. I mean, these are people moving in today's equivalent, presumably billions of dollars, billions of pounds worth of, 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 of currency, gold, treasure, art, stuff like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you know, of course, th- there is quite a lot of sort of gold ingots around and gold bars and all the rest of it. But just like anywhere else, I mean, you know, a lot of the currency is banknotes yeah. um, and it's assets and it's shares and it's all sorts of stuff. So it's all tied up in many different ways. I mean, what you haven't got is a sort of Aladdin's cave of, of kind of... Well, actually, that's not entirely true. <laughs> slightly got an Aladdin's We've got a cave. couple of them. You've yeah. got a couple of Aladdin's caves, but, but, it, but it's not as if, you know... I mean, this idea that kind of Nazis are sort of fleeing with huge, great train loads of gold sort of piled high oh. into some sort of, you know, and then, then it sort of runs into a snowdrift and, and then yeah. into a mountain and, yeah, you yeah. know, and then it's sort of protected by a dragon for the next thousand years. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just not true. It's very seductive, isn't it? But I mean, OK, let's talk about the, the, the troves that were found. So, I mean, I remember there's the big mines, uh, salt mines, aren't there, outside um, Altausse and that, that part of the world in Yeah, so that's, in where, they've got, that's where they've got all the painting. Okay. So all the paintings, all the artwork are, are, are there. The gold, there is, there is a gold reserve, and there are kind of. That, that's why I was sort of checking because yeah. there isn't an Aladdin's cave. That's at the Merkur salt mine, which is bang smack in the middle of Germany. I think it's right. in Thuringia. More than eight thousand gold bars have been stored here, all the, the gold reserves of the Reichsbank in former times. Nine billion dollars in today's currency. Only the golds. And the banknotes, just another $7 billion. And actually, I've been there, and it's the most extraordinary thing, because you, you go in a lift um, down about a kilometre, and then there are just miles and miles of huge, great tunnels. Um, th- so the imprint of the Murgus Mine is larger than the imprint of Leipzig, for example. OK, so you've got a, something the size of a city underground, and, and in it there would have been some cases. And in it, of... there is one room, there is one cave, right. which was full of gold. Right, OK. And, and how was that discovered? That was discovered by the Americans when they kind of overran the area and there were rumours about it and they kind of, you know, eventually went down into the, into the salt mine and there it all was. So that is Nazi gold in the flesh, in a tunnel, but it was found very, very quickly at the end of the war. Yeah. But and even before the war ended, probably. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of... I mean, you know, the sort of Ernst Kaltenbrunner in, in, yes. in Altersee. So he's an Austrian Nazi. He's, he's the head of the um, Reich Security Service. So he's directly under Himmler. He's sort of yeah. next one down. He and, ends up at uh, the Nuremberg Tribunal, of course. So he, and, and big hang. fish, big fish. He's massive fish. Anyway, but he's an Austrian Nazi. And so he, you know, in the kind of final stages, as you well know, well, I mean, he's he's down in Altersee and he is seen sort of digging holes in the garden of the Villa <laughs> Kelly, uh, you know, t- trying to hide cash. And there is, And he's also the overall officer in charge of a massive counterfeit operation where they're making their printing um, forged British banknotes. Ah, so can we talk about that? So that that is Operation Bernhard, is that yes. right? Yeah. yeah, OK. And that was run in a concentration camp, wasn't it? Yeah, and initially. And then, then at the end of the war, it was moved to a brewery just north of Salzburg. OK, so there was a film I think I've seen about that, what's it called, The Counterfeiters or something yes. like that. It's a good film, I seem to remember. Maybe Never it's not, seen yeah. it, but... but uh, yeah. I seem to remember it's a good film. I often say to James... Uh, is, that, is that a good film? And then he sort of raises his eyebrows and I have to say it's a bad film. But no, it, Imitation yeah, I, I see that's tr- the that, one that's really Yeah, and we spoke about that last episode of this podcast. I think that's, as far as I know, I think you're absolutely right. I think those are the only two major finds of gold. And I was, I was talking about this with another historian mate the other day, a chap called Adrian Wheel, who's also been on this podcast. And he was saying, I just can't think of any other examples of significant finds. Now, uh, there's one... Uh, location which has been celebrated it's notorious for having Nazi gold at the bottom of it and that's Lake Toplitz Mm. you know which is kind of like Loch Ness and it's this sort of huge lake 
freshwater lake in which there's meant to be tons and tons of Nazi gold. And it seems to me that every decade, a TV company goes down to Lake Toplitz and, and invests in ever increasingly sophisticated technology and radar technology and frogmen and you name it. And the most they've ever discovered from Lake Toplitz, I understand, is actually fake currency from Operation Bernhardt. Yeah, so, which is, you know, apart from its historical value, is utterly worthless. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, you know, fun to find, but fun you wouldn't want to yeah. spend a million pounds trying to find 20 quid's worth of paper. No. Those who've watched Goldfinger, now that is a good film, I mean, there's a bit moment when Bond chucks a gold ingot onto the putting green when, with Blofeld, and he says it's uh, from Lake Toplitz. I need some sort of bait. I quite agree. This is the only one we have from the Nazi horde at the bottom of Lake Toplitz and the Celts come a good. But there are undoubtedly others. And this was in the 60s, and of course, that was the kind of heyday of Nazi gold and the Fourth Reich and the early 70s, and that's where a lot of these stories come about. So, I mean, to your knowledge, nothing has really been discovered since really the end of the war in any significant way. No, I mean, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the Nazis did gather vast amounts of gold. I mean, not least from sort of Jewish Holocaust victims, teeth and all the rest of it. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely grotesque. You know, nicked all the rings, nicked all the jewellery, nicked all the teeth, kind of sent them all to a general depository in, in Berlin. They were then sifted and then they were all melted down and, and redone. So there may well be some Holocaust... In fact, there almost certainly is Holocaust gold on, on people right now to this day. Well, actually it wearing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the gold ring on my finger might, for all I know, be Holocaust gold. Or it could have maybe 2% of it is gold. You know, right. who knows? Yeah, yeah, who knows? But that stuff has all been kind of discovered and distributed and gone to the four winds. So you're, you're never going to find that. The idea that there's a kind of stash, I think, is sort of is, is really, really fanciful. It is very seductive. And I mean, I of course, you know, it, you can see why people fantasise about it. It, it. It's a very, very kind of, if you like, sort of sexy idea. But of course, you know, if you're going to take this seriously for a second, and I don't want to be boring. But when I did a book all about the flight of Nazis called Hunting Evil, and what I also and a very looked, good book it is. Uh, thank you. What what I also looked at was the flight of capital, and actually you were referring earlier to um, there's a meeting chaired by Borman, and there were lots of meetings going on on a kind of sort of senior level as to where to move all our cash, and there were obvious locations for doing it because if you are a senior Nazi and you've got access to vast amounts of bullion. What you're not going to do as the Red Army approach or as the Western Allies approach is, is bury it in a hole in territory that's about to be overrun. You're going to move it somewhere safe. Now, there are two very safe places where you can move gold. And I think this is where we can reveal where the Nazi <laughs> gold is, right? The first one I want to reveal to you, and then we'll come to the other one, is Spain. People always forget about Spain. And what the Nazis did is that they invested in all sorts of shell companies in Madrid. And there was a really big one called Sofindus. So think of Findus Fish Fingers, but with the word S-O in front of it. That was a big shell company. And also they invested in companies in Argentina. So there was one called Capri. And so they invested in these companies. So it wasn't digging bullion into a wood or in a, putting on a train and chucking it into a tunnel. This is sophisticated money laundering, if you like. Yeah. Um, what you're doing is you're converting that gold into a different form of asset. You're making it harder to trace. So, you know, this kind of commando comic 1970s war flick idea of Nazi gold is severely dated and simplistic. But, but, so Operation Bernhardt, this counterfeiting that we mentioned earlier on, I mean, that is the whole point of that is to undermine the British economy, to kind of infiltrate it into the British economy and kind of cause inflation, etc., etc. That doesn't happen because the British and the Americans are onto it very, very quickly. What the Nazis end up doing, what Kaltenbrunner does, is thinking, well, sort this for a game of art. You know, let, let's, let's actually just launder this. And so he sets up this, this interesting scallywag called Friedrich Schwendt, 
uh, who, who's a sort of you know petty criminal who's been in and out of prison, who's an absolute chancer. He's not a rabid Nazi at all. He's just a bad person who's kind of you know up for whatever he can get. And he is set up to in charge of laundering vast tranches of this money. And he sets himself up in Murano, um, primarily. And that's in northern Italy, in, in very northern Italy. pretty town, known for its glass. Yeah, and a, and a very interesting place because it's sort of it's south of the Brenner Pass, which is a sort of ancient access point through from Austria into the Tyrol and, and hence into northern Italy. And it is a sort of in-between land. And it's yeah. surrounded by mountains and it's quite hidden and, and you can slightly be off the grid there. Yeah. And, and what he does is all this money comes in quite often by Jews operating undercover in the Red Cross. OK. So it's quite interesting how he, he sets it up. And he then launches it into property, into all sorts of stuff and just just gets rid of it. And by the end of the war, he's absolutely minted, but he gets rumbled by the Americans and then gets turned. And a lot of the money then, you know, he then has to hand over the money. But there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that he's furiously trying to get rid of it. And obviously, large parts of it are go- going into bank vaults. But there are rumours that he kind of, you know, buried tranches of it yeah, as well, I'm where sure. he might be able to get back to at a later date. Such as, and, and I remember actually going, and it's a complete waste of time, up into this old fascist holiday resort up in the Alps. Right. And it's now just a shell. You know, you can see the kind of the grandeur behind it when it was designed in the mid-1930s. And there it all is. And we got this LADAR machine. And we were looking for kind of sort of anything under the ground that might look like, like a trunk. Like a trunk. Or a safe. Or a kind of bags of, bags of swag. The gold detector meter going, woo! Like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> absolutely nothing at all. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, so it was a complete waste of time. But it was all quite funny. But, but the long and short of it is, of course, these banknotes were being laundered, converted into other assets paintings, buildings, and right. of course, indeed, hard cash. And of course, the vast majority of it ends up in Zurich. In it's Bangkok. in Zurich. And, and Jim, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you want to find Nazi gold, take your pickaxe, go to the streets of Zurich and just simply start chipping away because you'll eventually reach a bank vault. And in those bank vaults, you're going to find bullion. Well, there's this American art historian. She was taken down to see a particular vault. And while she was down there, one of the vault doors was open and in it was a whole load of art. Wow. And she she, she saw it, but it was one of those that she knew what she saw, but it was fleeting. Right. And, oh, my God. So Uh, that's treasure, isn't it? uh, And, and, you know, there is still an active account under the name of H. Goering. There's another one under A. Hitler. That's just never been... Absolutely extraordinary. There's a very shady character that if you guys are interested, you should Google a man called Francois Genoud, G-E-N-O-U-D, who basically was a masterminded and looked after Hitler's estate. He was the crux of where a lot of Nazi treasure would have ended up or how it got funnelled ultimately into Switzerland. There's a very good book. He's called The Shadow Man, I think. Or at least it is in German. And it is extraordinary to think that that wealth still exists in some way. It doesn't just disappear in the way that Hitler... Yeah, effectively ends up being sort of shot and vaporised by himself. I mean, it is, the wealth is still there somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of, the, I mean, you know, for example, the, the most valuable painting that's, that hasn't been seen since 1945 is a portrait of a young man by, uh, by Raphael. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, it was in Poland and um, it's just gone. You know, no one's seen it. There's, there was an eyewitness to seeing it in 1974 in, in, a, in a cellar in a house in Bavaria, but it hasn't been seen since. Oh, yeah. and, and that's not sort of 
you know, confirmed. The, I mean, the bottom line is, of all this stuff, is, is when you're trying to find the answer to something, the most obvious answer is usually the correct one. And, you know, if you're Nazis and you're trying to get rid of stuff, where are you going to put it? Where it's not going to be touched? Yeah, you're going to put it in a different country. Oh, you're you're gonna, as it, you say, yeah. you're going you're to bury it in a pit in a forest in Poland. Where the Red Army <laughs> might just stumble across <laughs> your Or are you going to put it in Switzerland or Tangier? It's interesting. Tangier is an interesting one because it, that, that was a free city, of course. In the, in the, uh, okay, in, I can't in, in the 1940s. Okay. It, it was jointly run by Spain, France and Britain. Of course, uh, and yeah. it was a banking centre, and and you know it's closer than some of the other places. And the other great treasure, of course, is the Amber Room, which always you know is, mm. is another hardy favourite. Restoration work started in 1982, and there are new panels at floor level. The Russians still talk emotively of getting the original Amber back from the Germans, although the chances of this happening seem remote. Most people think the panels were destroyed or lost at sea during the war. If it's not technically Nazi gold, it's still, you know, associated with the Nazis. So was it blown up in a castle by the RAF accidentally by a load of typhoons? Was it Königsberg? Do you know about this story? Yeah, yeah no, it is in Königsberg, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was taken from, wasn't it, from St. Petersburg into to Königsberg. There's, there's a sort of strong suggestion that it, it sank with the Wilhelm Guslov, and, and, which was the biggest maritime catastrophe ever. I can't remember how many people were killed in that. Sort of oh, like 6, it's extraordinary, or absolutely extraordinary. But it's a huge number, and, and apparently it was in that being sort of taken out of. I can believe that, and uh, I mean, I remember I did I did quite a lot of work on on this man called Cornelius Gerlitt, yes. who was discovered in his flat. Where was that? In Frankfurt or somewhere? No, no, it's in, in Munich. In Munich, that was it, with a flat full of paintings, wasn't it? And, yeah, and, yeah. And of course, everyone said, "Oh, maybe Gurlitt knows where the Amber Room is." And you know, there's well, Gurlitt's got nothing to do with it. exactly nothing, nothing I know. to do. Gurlitt Senior, his father, was an interesting character because there were a number of people who were who were licensed by the Nazis to deal in degenerate art. That's right, and this is art that that basically wasn't approved of by the regime by Hitler. So you know. yes, so it was it was outlawed, but the, but the Nazis were still allowed to make money from it. Yeah. So they had these specialist dealers. What the dealers were doing, they were ripping off absolutely everybody because they were stealing stuff from Jews and galleries and you know whatever. But then they were also ripping off the Nazis as well. So what they would do is they'd, they'd sort of go, OK, well, you know, the infantry would say, I found uh, 17 paintings. But on the infantry they then sent to Berlin, it would only have 14. And they're just uh, off, feathering into, off, their they're off into sort of four of them themselves. Was he called Hildebrand? The Hildebrand girl. Hildebrand girl. I, and one of the other seductive uh, stories that I always like is, is the puppet dictator, if you like, of, of Croatia, a man called Ante Pavlic, yes. did escape with an estimated about $300 million of the Croatian treasury from the Bank of Zagreb. And when Pavlic went into hiding after the war, it was rumoured, and I've seen this in an intelligence report, that a British colonel had actually done a deal with uh, Pavlic uh, for his freedom in return for a load of bullion. And I mean, the, the, unfortunately, the colonel's name from memory is just, it's a very common garden sort of English surname, which is like Wilson. And, you know, it's very frustrating. I still, you know, if it was slightly more unusual, I, I would like to think there's probably, you know, an estate somewhere in Hampshire that's entirely funded by Croatian gold. Also, there's, a, there's the um, ancient Jewish gold of Gerba. So there's this very ancient Jewish community on the island of Gerba, which is just off the coast of southern Tunisia. And there's this amazing, uh, amazing collection of gold there. And the commander of the SS in North Africa was a chap called Walter Ralph. He was a deeply unpleasant man, as I'm sure you know. He made the extermination vans. He made the, yes, exactly, the, yeah. the mobile gas chambers. And um, anyway, he was sent out down to Tunisia uh, and he got wind of the fact that there was this 
ancient Jewish community um, on the island of Gerba, and that there was a synagogue that was just absolutely chock-a-block with gold. So he sent down his sort of his henchmen down there, and the British Eighth Army were, were coming across from um, uh, from North Africa, out of Libya, into into southern Tunisia. And so they knew the kind of race was on to get it really quickly. So the, the SS henchmen went into um, saw all the kind of Jewish elders and, and Gerber and said, said, right, you've got 24 hours to find us, you know, 50 kilograms of cash or uh, of gold, uh, gold. Or, else, or, else, or else we're going to kill you all. Um, and so they scrabbled around, sort of cleaned out the synagogue, um, managed to get 48 kilo- kilograms. And the Nazis said, oh, that'll do. Um, oh, uh, uh, and then they just sort of skedaddled and got there, you know, got out just sort of in the nick of time. And this is the mystery of Rommel's gold. Of course, it's got absolutely nothing to do with Rommel whatsoever. It's entirely oh, to do yeah, with Walter Ralph and his Walter Ralph. And uh, no one knows what happened to it. OK, so again, that could have ended but up being laundered. But it was probably or... shot, you know, some of it was probably shot down and in, in transit. Again, it just probably got spent. Yep. Um, it got kind of... Melted down melted or whatever down it is. Melted down and it just went to the four winds again. Maybe there is a little bit of berry gold somewhere around. Maybe there is. I mean, but, you can But the say... interesting thing about Walter Ralph is that, is that you know, he lived out his days in um, Santiago in Chile and um, you know he there was no evidence to suggest that he was absolutely minted when he yeah yeah exactly either these guys are very good at hiding their wealth but he definitely did take the cash so you know between him dying in 1984 or whenever it was and that happening in 19 early 1943 something happened it dissipated something happened can I just as as we draw near the end of this this episode I just want to talk about Spitfires in Burma because I remember (laughs) having a lot of laughs about that I think I even wrote a piece about it a lost piece of Second World War history is coming a little closer to being unearthed. Researchers will leave for Burma this weekend to dig up what they believe to be untouched Spitfire planes, which were packed and buried by British troops at the end of the war. While leading the project. That was an extraordinary story, and it, it was treasure of a different sort. Can we just remind ourselves, was it... This is a classic example of the kind of hubris of the treasure hunter, isn't it? Because it was confidently rumoured there were, what, 12 Spitfires in packing cases? Yeah. Oiled and ready to put together as, like, an airfix. I mean, that, that, that. that had been buried somewhere near Rangoon or something. Yeah, this is extraordinary. So, so rumours about this had sort of uh, have been going on for ages. And um, in the 1990s, I think the late 1990s, they were sufficiently strong that the Air Historical Branch, which is the official historical wing of the RAF, was asked uh, by the Ministry of Defence to look into it. Right, OK. And so they went through all their records and there was absolutely no records anywhere of any missing Spitfires. So every single plane that went to Burma could be accounted for. Right. Except these 12 supposed Spitfires. Right, okay. Which rather suggests that they didn't exist in the first place. Not least because... Spitfires were incredibly precious in the Far East. They're incredibly complicated to get out. I mean, right. you know, you have got to ship, you know, you have got to box them up, you've got to put them on ships, you've got to get them out there, and then you've got to reassemble them. It's a massive palaver. So the idea that no one would know, there would be no paper trail for 12 Spitfires that have gone missing. The packing has gone missing. Right, yeah, because if you. So yeah. that, that's just the arrival. And then, then the fact that you would then bury them. I mean, the question is, is why would you think it's a good idea to bury them at the end of the war when you've won? Yeah, no, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Yeah. In one of the wettest places in the entire planet. And the idea that even if they were there and they had somehow missed out on the paperwork and someone had been stupid enough to bury them, the idea that when you unburied them, just because they'd been, you know, put in packing boxes with grease, that they'd be okay is absurd. As um, Seb Cox, who's the head of the Air Historical Branch, said to me, he's like, yeah, if you want to create a Spitfire squadron, a brand new Spitfire squadron, there's a hell of a lot easier ways of doing it than going to going to Burma. Just there's 
there's 12 in various pieces around here. Yeah, all right, just do that. Yeah, no, I remember I remember even David Cameron was Prime Minister in that story. I know, but, but, I mean, just, got... but, yeah, but that just goes to show how can sort of complete... But everybody can, yeah, everybody can get gulled. Even Prime Ministers can get gulled by Nazi gold. Look, we could talk about this all afternoon, all day. Jim, thank you so much. I think that, I would say there's a book in Nazi gold. There have been lots of books about Nazi gold. And, and by and large, they're utter nonsense. I think, yeah, well, you'd have to call it lack of. Lack of Nazi gold. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, that was always, that's why I wanted to call my book about hunting Nazi. I wanted to call it hunting evil or not. Or Nazi not gold, no evil. gold. So from Nazi gold to no gold, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I mean, you know, good luck. I mean, you know, if you want to go to a former supposed SS brothel in Poland with your spade, go for it. But you know what? As I always say, and I know this sounds very smug, I always make more money writing about Nazi gold than any Nazi gold that's ever discovered. And on that chilling thought, I shall leave you. But Jim, thanks so much for coming along. And just to say, History Festival, all steaming ahead this year. Yep, the Daily Mail, Chalk Valley History Festival. Yep, 23rd to the 27th of June. All come to that, all come. A lot of familiar faces will be there if you're a big history fan. And uh, no, it, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. So looking forward to that. Jim, thanks so much for coming along. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Cheerio. And that's it for today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe to us or indeed leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify. You can connect on social media at Mail Plus, all one word, and you can also connect with me at Guy Walters. And in the meantime, thanks again for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.